G'day everyone, I'm Lockie Mansell here. Welcome to Checkered Flag Chat. Our guest this week is Craig Denyer. While we may not have reached the household name status of his son Grant, Craig has an impressive CV in both the motorsport and commercial media industries. In the podcast, Craig recalls some early childhood memories which sparked his love of motor racing and he talks about his years working in commercial radio. We also discuss Craig's involvement in his son's television and motorsport activities, the rise and fall of the V8 Ute series, and his latest project, the TA2 Muscle Car Series. Craig's industry expertise means he can comment with authority on the current state of the Aussie motorsport industry, and he certainly didn't hold back on offering some forthright opinions. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on board. And uh, a lot for us to talk about because uh, obviously you've had an extensive career in broadcasting. You've had a very long-term interest in motorsport. We've seen that you've been involved in helping your son Grant with not only his motorsport journey, but his journey in television land as well. And I thought that you'd be an interesting person to put forward some views on the current state of play in motorsport here in Australia. So, We'll go back to the start, and before we talk about the motorsport stuff, we actually have to go back a bit before that and talk about the non-motorsport media stuff that you're involved in. And would I be correct in saying that one of the first moments that you realised your interest in speaking in front of a large audience was when you were on the debating team at high school? <laughs> well, pretty close to that. I uh, I did um, spend a fair bit of time in uh, in amateur theatre, at high school, and in the, uh, I was born in a, a little country town called Tamora, which is between Wagga Wagga and West Wyalong in western New South Wales. We still have a family farm out there, and that's where I kind of got my interest, I guess, in theatre and performing. And uh, I won a couple of um, local prizes for public speaking when I was 13, 14, 15. But I went to um, my first ever motor race at Hume Weir. I had no knowledge of motor racing, and a mate of mine took me to Hume Weir when I was about 14, I reckon, and I saw Norm Beachy in a 1968 blue 327 Monaro come around uh, the top corner, all the spectators are sideways in the rain, waving to people with his hand out the window, and that basically hooked me on the sport. So from that moment, motor racing became a major part of my life, and I built a stock car when I was 16 years of age at Tamora High School, and they had a, a speedway that opened up at Tamora called the Woodland Circuit, which was quite well known for dirt, uh, dirt track racing, bike racing, midget car racing and stock car racing. And me and a, a mate of mine built an FE Holden and uh, I raced that for two or three years at Tamora uh, before ultimately moving into media, which was uh, television and then radio. So those early years at high school where you were involved in the theatre and the drama combined with your passion and interest in motorsport and getting involved in the speedway competition was it sort of natural that becoming involved in broadcasting and commentary for motorsport was a way of combining your interest in motorsport with your love and passion and talent for public speaking look i guess it was i, I was very very interested in the sport and then when i went to my first uh, radio station which was 2lt lithgow very close to bathurst and very close to Amaru Park in those days. So I used to travel to every Amaru Park meeting. I got to know Ivan Stibbard, who was the promoter of both those events. And they had a local sporting show on uh, 2LT every Saturday morning, but they didn't have any motorsport content. So I volunteered to do a 10 to 15 minute motorsport show each week, which gave me the opportunity to interview Ivan, interview people in the motorsport business, drivers. And I guess that combined with you know being a DJ at the time, gave me the opportunity to, uh, you know, to meet and greet people in motorsport, to promote motorsport, enjoy the race meetings that I could go to, and, uh, and also, you know, go on as a career in both radio and television in the media. But it was really a passion and not a planned, uh, I guess, purpose to actually go down that road. It kind of just happened. Let's talk a bit more about your time in commercial radio, because you mentioned there that you were involved with 2LT, but then, as I recall, you also moved up to the Central Coast after that and spent quite a lot of time at 2GO. That's true. Uh, 2GO was my next uh, radio station, a great little radio station on the Central Coast of New South Wales. And uh, again, through my involvement with GO, we, we had a Saturday sports program that I contributed to. I continued to go to motor race meetings. 
And then we we promoted a, a rally around the Australian Rally Championship called the Dunlop 2GO International Rally, which I was heavily involved with, along with members of the Deepwater Sporting Car Club. And in 1983-84, we brought out a young unknown rally driver from the UK called uh, Malcolm Wilson, who was just recovering from a massive accident in an Audi where he'd broken both legs. We were looking for an international driver to hang off the event. I phoned Dave Richards, who was then working for ProDrive in the UK. He suggested Malcolm, and we flew Malcolm out. And that started a friendship that I've had with Malcolm now for uh, for over 30 years. And, of course, he's gone on to... Uh, you know, run the Bentley M Sport program, which won the Bathurst 12 hour last February. And of course, uh, Ford's investment in world championship rallying for many, many years. So going back to 83, 84, Malcolm was a young out of work rally driver looking for somewhere to um, re, uh, I guess, uh, charge his career. And it was nice that we were able to be part of that. And you mentioned that you just rang up David Richards from ProDrive. So did you already have a relationship with David Richards at that stage? No, I simply... Um, I got his telephone number from Jimmy McRae, who was a racing driver at the time. That's Colin McRae's father. And we'd actually been talking to Jim about him coming out. But he had a clashing commitment. And he said, ring Dave Richards and he'll be able to help you find another driver. And so he gave me his number and I rang him out of the blue. He was an absolute delight to deal with. And he didn't charge me a cent. Even better. I think one of the things that I'm already noticing here is the fact that even back then, and even though you might not necessarily have been working within the motorsport industry as your full-time occupation at that stage, you'd already, even back then, in, in the late 70s and the early 80s, you'd already obviously built up quite a solid network of motorsport connections, both here in Australia and overseas. Yeah, I guess being involved in radio and being able to go to Bathurst, I mean, uh, 2GO was part of a network which included 2WS in Sydney. Western suburbs were very much motorsport orientated, so 2WS had a lot of motorsport content and um, they actually co-sponsored an Amaru Park series called the 2WS Stallion Stables Production Car Series, which Peter Fitzgerald, Brad Jones and guys like that raced in. And um, we used to take the 2WS caravan to Bathurst every year and broadcast live from uh, Mount Panorama, one of the first uh, radio stations to do so. And uh, I guess that got me the opportunity to meet guys like uh, Dick Johnson, Peter Brock, you know, the, the, the well-known names of the, of the time. And I did one little short stint as a racing driver at uh, Amaru Park in a series they call the Alfa Romeo Trophy Series. And that was a pro-am series that had Colin Bond, Alan Jones, Tony Longhurst was discovered in that series by Frank Gardner. Um, Alfie Costanzo raced in that series as well. And I was spectacularly unsuccessful. And uh, by then I was a, a father with two children and couldn't afford to continue on. So I had my on-track fix, as limited as it might have been, but continued to, uh, to indulge in my passion, I guess, through the, the marketing and promotional aspects of the sport. But back then, obviously, this is well and truly pre-internet days, so commercial radio would have been massive back then because uh, obviously the advantage of radio is that people can listen to it while they're involved in other activities. So people can listen to it while they're at work, people can listen to it while they're in the car. Just how powerful was commercial radio back then? It was very, very powerful in uh, in promoting motorsport because uh, particularly stations like 2WS that realised that motorsport was a major part of their of their demographic mix made sure that they, they covered uh, what was happening in the Touring Car Championship in their news bulletins and anything relative to local motorsport in Western Sydney. So it was, um, it, it was vital. And, and then doing uh, updates from events like... Um, the Bathurst 1000 and other events around Australia. They had the 1979 Repco Around Australia rally. Well, 2WS and 2GO sent myself and a, another journalist called Ian Kelly to cover that event around Australia for two weeks, which was an amazing experience for me. We did it by, by light plane. And that was the year, of course, that um, Peter Brock won and, uh, and led a, a Holden Commodore 123. And again, I mean, 2WS funded that. They made it happen. And uh, their, uh, their audiences uh, obviously uh, relish that kind of information that they couldn't really get from any other Sydney radio station. So your position description was you were program director, weren't you, at 2GO and then the stint that you did with 2WS in Sydney as well. So what exactly did your role with those radio stations entail? 
A program director is really responsible for the sound of the radio station. So you may come up with a defined uh, niche for the radio station, which might be, okay, we're going to, going to target the, the 25 to 39 demographic, um, all male or all female or whatever it may well be. And then you design primarily the format, the music content that appeals to that demographic and that audience. And um, you, you look at the Sydney radio scene now, you've got a very, very defined niches of radio stations. I mean, Alan Jones has just resigned from the all-talk station 2GB, but you've got Smooth doing the easy listening um, you know, mix in Sydney. You've got Triple M doing kind of classic rock. You've got WSM doing sort of an FM version of classic hits. So they've all got their very, very defined niche to appeal to a particular demographic. A radio station today, unlike... Probably 50 years ago, a radio station today can't be all things to all people. It has to pick a market, and it's the program director's role to determine what that market is, what's going to be the most profitable market for the station to chase, and then come up with a programming uh, format or philosophy that caters to that market. One of the things that we have seen introduced, actually, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, and this is kind of deviating a bit away from motorsport, but it's still something that I'm interested in, digital radio. And something that we've seen probably introduced a bit over a decade ago now. But I don't know. The feel that I get is that the uptake of digital radio and the people that listen to it, it maybe hasn't quite penetrated the market as much as what some people might have expected. Uh, what are your thoughts on digital radio? I think uh, you're absolutely spot on, Lockie. I don't think uh, there has been the take-up that the industry hoped there would be, and uh, and it's largely unknown by by the wider audience. They're 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 st- still glued to the FM band, and in some cases they're still glued to the AM band. I mean, the number one radio station in both Sydney and uh, and Melbourne are AM stations, um, mainly talk talk based AM stations. But yeah, and not every car has a digital radio. So until you get the situation where every car has a local digital radio, it's very, very hard then to uh, to market the product. And uh, I think Australia is probably well, well behind what's happening in Europe. And I'm not close enough to the radio industry anymore to probably understand exactly why, but there simply isn't the digital radio penetration in this country to make it, I would have thought, a viable option as yet. I think one of the problems is the fact that a lot of cars in particular these days are coming out with Android Auto or Apple CarPlay as part of their audio systems, which means that people can listen to things on demand. So it's a bit like television with people now having access to KO Sports and Netflix and all of the other services where they can watch programs when they want and they can watch very specific types of programs as well. I think a similar thing's happening in radio where people are gravitating towards things like listening to podcasts or, you know, listening to things like Spotify where they can listen to the specific types of music that they want rather than having to listen to preset programs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're an instant gratification society these days, you know, and you want what you want and you want it now. And certainly uh, that kind of um, your programming that's available is very much where the trend is going. I mean, I think actually it's quite surprising how well traditional radio has stood up to uh, the fragmentation of media in general. I think radio has actually stood up to it better than television. Uh, radio hasn't come under attack like uh, free-to-air television has with uh, Netflix and Stan and other content providers. And uh, radio continues to probably be you know, the communicative friend, if you like, at the end of, uh, the end of a speaker. And, uh, and a lot of people are lonely. And I think you'll find that um, there's been some research released only the last few weeks, which has proven that radio during the COVID-19 lockdown, the uh, rating listening hours have increased quite dramatically across the board, particularly during the daytime hours, because people are looking forward to the companionship and the music and the information all out of one source. So turning our attention back to your journey, though, because after your time at 2GO and 2WS, you would actually head over to the UK for a couple of years in 1987 and spend a bit of time working for a radio station over there. What did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that was interesting. I, uh, I finished up at WS at the end of 85 because I was involved in a company that was going for new FM radio licences in Australia, both on the Gold Coast and on the Central Coast of New South Wales. And uh, in 1986, I took a year off from uh, radio and I was actually the business manager for the Alan Grice Graham Bailey Chickadee team, which ultimately went on to, uh, to win Bathurst. So that was my full year, I guess, 
of sabbatical away from radio, but heavily involved in, in motor racing at that level. And um, I think back now to um, you know writing up press releases at the back of the, the, the Chickadee Transporter at uh, Bathurst in 1986. I mean, there was no email. Uh, there was nothing like that. And you had, you know, four or five carbon pieces of carbon and, and letterhead pa- blank pieces, pages stacked between the carbon and you, you printed it out on a typewriter. So you got four or five copies in the one print run. And then you'd go and hand one to Will Hagen or you'd hand one to Mike Raymond and then you'd pin one up on the press room in, um, at the Bathurst 1000 Media Centre. So it was well before the technology that, uh, that you guys get to work with today. <laughs> but it was the start. And, uh, and there was myself and um, who else was around? Phil Christensen in those days. Uh, John Smales and Will Hagen, as I mentioned. So it was pretty raw in those days at Mount Panorama in terms of what you actually had. It was really a tape recorder and a typewriter. That's all you had to work with. But we still got the information out that we needed to. So that was a great year. And that led me on going to, uh, to work um, for the Paul Ramsey Group in the UK, who'd bought into 16 commercial radio stations. And I was over there as their Australian representative for a couple of years, which was great fun. So spent a couple of years over in the UK. Then you came back to Australia, and you were very heavily involved, weren't you, in the launch of the CFM radio station up on Gold Coast? Yes. What happened, uh, the, the company that I was uh, consulting to that actually went on to win the Gold Coast licence was a company called CFM. So I came back at the end of December in 1988 uh, in the role of general manager to set up CFM and take it through its uh, formative years with my plans to ultimately go back to the UK. But uh, life on the Gold Coast uh, is pretty good, and some 30-odd years later, I'm still here. And uh, CFM was very, very successful. It went to number one in its first survey, and I stayed in that role for seven or eight years. And then, again, I probably had a, had enough of radio for a while, decided I'd take a break, and I had started to do some commentary work for the 10 Network, who were just getting into motorsport at that stage. And, uh, and that kind of led to a, a full-time year uh, doing some work for Channel 10 and uh, some other commentary work as well for GPTV in Melbourne, the Formula One events. And uh, that kind of, I guess, then took me down the motorsport road more on a full-time basis. I was heavily involved with the, with the running of the Gold Coast in the event through my association with CFM. And that was, uh, they were pretty exciting events, those Gold Coast Indy events in the early days when, when Cart and Champ cars were at their best. So by now we're in the mid to late 90s and at this stage you've had experience working in Australia in radio and you've had the commercial experience that you've gained over in the UK. You've also got some experience in the motorsport, media and PR and commercial side of things as you mentioned, working for Alan Grice's team. So getting involved in motorsport broadcasting and commentary for Channel 10 and getting to work at some of those marquee events like the Gold Coast Indy Race, the Australian Grand Prix, was that the fulfilment of a childhood dream at that point? Was that sort of the realisation of something that you'd always been aiming for? Look, not really. I think I, it kind of just fell, fell that way, Lockie. I can't say that, again, it was a concrete plan to do. Um, I mean, I, I love motorsport. It was my passion. I still believe that um, media was my business, and uh, and I was always probably going to follow that as a career more so than I would uh, uh, getting into motor racing. But um, I guess taking a break from radio, just as Channel 10 picked up the rights to V8 supercars, kind of created an opportunity there. And uh, and so that kind of took me down that road, which ultimately led to to meeting Ross Palmer. And, uh, and uh, he was just kicking off pro car at that stage. And he was looking for a hand in a few areas. So that kind of led me into what was then pretty much a full-time role with Procar as their, uh, as their chief operations uh, uh, officer in the early days of what was then GTP and ultimately evolved into uh, Nations Cup and the V8 Brute Series. So that really became a full-time role while I continued to do some commentary work for the various networks that were carrying motor racing at the time. So that sort of leads me into my next question, which is that that was your first foray into category management. And particularly when we think about Craig Denyer, one of the categories that you've been synonymous with has been the V8 Utes category. So tell us about the foundation of the V8 Utes and exactly how that idea was formed. Look, it was a very, very simple beer one afternoon involving probably three or four of us, Ian McAllister, 
who uh, continues to race today. Paul Ryan, who's a PR guy that now works in the um, uh, in, in America, but was based out of Adelaide at the time. And myself, and um, I was introduced to ProCar by Bill West, who was then the general manager of ProCar, but uh, he kind of departed in early 2000. But at that stage, the support category lineup at major V8 supercar events was pretty thin. I mean, there was no Aussie racing cars, no Touring Car Masters, no Carrera Cup in those days, no second-tier development series. And uh, so the, 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 the opportunity for an entertaining support category was ripe. And uh, at that stage, Holden had just released the SS, Ford had just released the XR8 Ute, and they were kind of positioned as two-door sporting coupes as much as they were workhorse V8 Utes. And uh, we just were sitting around the table one night and said, hey, how about Ute racing? How good would that be? And from that, the idea grew very, very quickly. Ross Palmer picked it up and said, I'll back it. We did a deal with Wayne Park, Brisbane-based former racer and engineer, to build originally what was the first nine utes, and we debuted the Clipsal 500 in 2001 with nine of those utes, and I funded the very, very first R&D ute, which ultimately Grant went on to race that year as well in 2001. So it was as simple as that. Uh, it was probably three Coopers beers in we were at a roundtable meeting somewhere at a pub, probably over a steak and chips. The germ of an idea came up, we ran with it, and 17 years later, the series was still very successful. And it grew exponentially. And I mean, one of the things, obviously, ProCar folded in 2004, but V8 Utes carried on. And as I recall, there was actually a summer series at the end of 2004, which shifted the V8 Utes from being part of ProCar to being one of the Supercars Championship support categories. So what methodology did you adopt to be able to grow V8 Utes from being a category that was running within the pro car framework to becoming a very popular supercar support category which was able to attract so much corporate backing look the the series was all about entertainment and we said it's got to be about entertainment first if we're going to be a viable support category we have to entertain the fans it was about entertainment first and motor racing second and once we got that mentality into everybody's head and they understood what it was about uh, the series absolutely fired so we had what they call a Chook Lotto qualifying draw, so anybody could end up on pole position for race one. For race two, there was always a reverse of that. So if you started on pole position for race one, you would start on P32 for race two. And then race three was an aggregate on points of where you finished race one and race two. So everybody got a chance at the front. Everybody got a chance to expose their sponsors, which made the series very, very marketable. And uh, the fan got race action in every race because there was constant passing. Now, yes, there was a lot of biff and barge. Yes, there was a lot of damage. But we kind of positioned it as the World Championship Wrestling, I guess, of motorsport. If you like, the clown act at the circus before the main act came on. And that's why we were such a complimentary fit to V8 supercars as a support category. And what actually happened in, in 2004 when Ross Palmer decided that he wanted to withdraw from motorsport I, and along with 31 other guys, owned utes that were, you know, committed to race that year. So we started a company called the V8 Ute uh, Company, and all the shareholders were basically team owners. So we took over the running of the category once Ross had basically withdrawn and handed it back to CAMS. And I knew the only way that we were going to survive commercially was to be on the main program, which was V8 Supercars. And, uh, and I went and did the deal with, with uh, Wayne Caddock and Tony Cochran, on a, on a three-year deal that we would be the support categories to V8 supercars. And I still remember Tony Cochran's words echoing in my ear at the time. He said, Craig, you've just got to understand, we've got a big pool. We're in the deep end and you're in the shallow end. So long as you stay down the shallow end, we'll get on fine. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I see Tony, I remind him that we're still paddling down the shallow end, Tony. But we survived 17 years and uh, it was a great series. Some great names went through it some fantastic race action and some uh, some brilliant television. Were there many differences with running the category as part of ProCar compared to running the category as a supercar support program? Not really. I mean, the basic fundamentals are the same. And we never really had a problem with supercars. I mean, look, they, they respected uh, what we brought to the table and uh, we respected the fact that they gave us an opportunity to play. So, and the same with ProCar. ProCar was a great idea. Well, um, well thought out by Ross, good categories because it had Formula 3, GTP, Nations Cup, Utes. It needed probably another year to survive commercially 
and probably the 24-hour race, which also morphed out of ProCar, which Ross funded, probably needed another 12 months as well. And I think if we'd have had that extra year to consolidate and bring in more commercial funding, the whole entity would have continued on and uh, who knows where it would have been today. But that didn't happen. Ross elected to, uh, to withdraw, which, uh, which was understandable, given the, the large financial commitment he'd made as a team owner. I mean, he was racing his son Darren in Formula 3. He had two Ferraris in Nations Cup. He raced himself overseas. Plus, he was essentially funding Utes, Nations Cup and GTP at standalone race meetings. So there was a massive financial commitment that he was up for. And, uh, and in the end, um, I think he just said uh, or thought, you know, it's all, all a bit too much. I just need to get back enjoying life, which, which we understood. And, uh, and, and basically, the Australian GT Championship now has morphed out of what was Nations Cup. Formula 3 is still going, probably wouldn't, would have been still going had Ross not invested in those early years. And uh, the eight uh, Utes, as we know, have stopped tried another format and uh, that certainly was never going to work and has been proven not to work. But, um, you know, the, the, the genesis of what he started all those years ago is still very much around in, in, in motorsport and it's, it's much better off because of that. So with the VAUs, as you mentioned, um, it started to, to probably decline heading into 2014 and 2015. Ultimately, Supercars took it over and started managing it. You guys decided to exit the series at that point. What prompted you and Bill Weston and Spherix to get out of the V8 Utes at that point? It was no longer commercially sustainable. And, and the key driver of that was supercars and cams uh, did not want to sanction a new V8 utility platform or series. They wanted to basically have standard diesel SUVs racing. And we basically said, look, we don't believe there's 32 competitors that want to race diesels. We don't believe the fans want to see diesels racing and we don't believe there is the commercial support in terms of sponsorship to fund not just a series but individual teams. We said we think and we, and we, and we did offer up a, uh, a, uh, a platform which I thought was, uh, was viable. It was a V8 powered SUV and looked good, was low, loud and probably would have been the perfect um, fit for where the Utes were to where they need to go to. That was presented to Supercars. We had a signed uh, agreement with James Warburton, a heads of agreement that that would happen, but that ultimately was blocked at the V8 board level and uh, they wanted you know, basically diesel, stock standard diesel SUV utes. We said, guys, if you want to do it, here you are, you can run it, but we don't believe there's a commercial uh, case for this to survive. And that was the catalyst for it. So in light of all that, obviously, we saw the Super Utes, which ran for a couple of seasons in 2018 and 2019, which used, like you said, diesel versions of, of production-based Utes. Uh, did you pay much attention to that category and what were your thoughts on it? It was never going to work, Lockie, and, and everything that happened in that category, we forewarned both cams and supercars about uh, why it would fail. And, uh, and it did, because, <laughs> because not 32 drivers wanted to, to race a diesel. Simple as that. And they weren't prepared to fund them. They were expensive. Uh, the fans, uh, they did not engage with the fans at all. Some of the racing was, was okay. The cars were very, very expensive to repair. But it was pitched at the wrong market and unsustainable. And uh, from day one, we said that was the case, and that was the reason we walked away from it. And it's no surprise that it only lasted two years. I feel sorry for those that invested in it because uh, there was a lot of you know, money spent, a lot of good money spent. And I know there are some plans to revive it with a V8 engine that Luke Cedars has been leading the charge for, uh, and that may well happen, but it was never going to work in a diesel form. We can't have you on the podcast without talking about your son, Grant, and his motorsport exploits. He's done a bit of everything, did some production car racing, obviously spent quite a bit of time in the V8 Utes and had some very good results. Also spent some time driving for several teams, including Dick Johnson Racing in the Super 2 Series, as we now know it, but in its various guises as the, the second-tier supercar series. And at the same time, he's also had a very successful television career. How heavily have you been involved in managing both his motorsport and his TV exploits? Uh, look, his, his television exploits, he's really achieved 
on his own. Although I, I mean, in the early days, I helped him with some introductions, and uh, and I still take the odd phone call on on guidance. Um, but he's really achieved that through hard work, raw talent, and hard work. Done a lot of it himself. I purely gave him some initial introductions that that probably helped him along the way. In terms of motorsport, he used to follow me around when he was a young kid, when I would be calling the Sandown 500 or going to Formula One um, GPT rate, GPTV commitments in Melbourne. And so he kind of got his love for the sport through that. Uh, when he turned 16, I said to him, if his grades at school improve, I'll buy him a go-kart and he can go racing. And at that stage, it wasn't easy because his mother and I had uh, separated. I was on the Gold Coast and he was living with his mother and his sister in Melbourne. Uh, but um, I went and bought a cart from Drew Price and uh, that started his on-track, I guess, activities when he was about 16. We had go-karts and motorbikes at the family farm, so he was kind of driving, you know, those since he was eight or nine years of age and, you know, driving farm vehicles and tractors and everything, so he, he understood it all and uh, I guess we figured um, he was wired up wrong when he tried to do donuts in the Massey Ferguson tractor and we had to uh, put a stop to that pretty quickly. Out of all of the things that he's achieved in, in his career, this is probably a double question because, again, it encompasses both the motorsport and the television side of things, but are there any particular achievements on both sides of, the, of that coin that make you particularly proud? Yeah, look, I think his, his, his ute racing, uh, and, and I should acknowledge Tony Quinn here, who's been a great supporter of Grant's for many, many years, and Tony actually funded the very, very first ute uh, that we raced in 2001. So Tony was an instrumental player in Grant, not just in Utes, but took him to um, the Burgering, where they finished ninth outright, and then the Burgering 24-hour race in a Porsche. Um, they finished, I think, in the top six in the Bathurst um, 24-hour race, again, driving with Tony Quinn and the family. And uh, he continues to drive uh, with Tony now. In fact, I think they're planning to team up together in the Bathurst six-hour in a Ford Mustang together. So, um, so Tony was, 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 was as much instrumental in making Grant's career moves as probably I was. I mean, I was there to help support, fund the deals and uh, where I could and, and, and help facilitate it all. But there were other players that helped him along quite immensely as well. Alan Grice was another player. We ran a two-car team for a year with, uh, with Grice and Grant in the, in the last year that we ran V8 Utes. Uh, I had known Dick Johnson for many, many years. I got Dick into a rally drive back in 1983. And um, that started the dialogue about, you know, going and racing Super 2, which ultimately happened. He got to drive for Dick in uh, the 2000, and you'll be able to tell me, Lockie, what year it was, 2009, was it? Uh, he finished ninth outright with Alex Davidson. Oh, six it would have been. There you are, six. See, you're, you're better on the stats and figures than I am. And again, Dick was a major player. He had two stints at DJR, both uh, in the development series, and finished fourth outright in his final year there. Um, which was great. So there's been other key players that have helped him along the way. Just Cuts have been a long-term sponsor of Grants as well, which has helped him, you know, put the whole package together financially. And uh, and he's been very, very lucky to be able to combine the television and racing commitments. I often thought that he, he had to make a decision. He had to choose. Uh, he broke his back in a monster truck accident, um, which which curtailed his motor racing for uh, for a good 12 months. And at that point, he made the decision that television was just going to be the long-term career. I think if he'd have persevered at motorsport, he would have been a very, very good, uh, consistent uh, racer, probably got good results. Uh, he made the decision to, to, to go to television, but has still been lucky to basically, I guess, get his motor racing fixed through uh, being able to do events where he can and when it fits in with his television career. Very proud that he won a gold logie. Not too many people in television get a, a hunk of gold. They can use the front door as a doorstop. So, um, so you know, that was, that was a special moment in his television career that we all shared in. Yeah, and it's been lovely to see that you've been so actively supporting his endeavours, that's for sure. So we turn our attention to where we are today, and uh, obviously after the, the V8 Utes finished and Spherix's activity started to diminish you, took a couple of years off really out of motorsport but more recently we've seen that you've been getting involved in category management for the TA2 series so what prompted you to get involved in that? Well I really didn't know a lot about them and uh, Ian McAllister who I kept in contact with and, and doesn't live all that far from where our farm is 
and I'd call in and have a, a coffee with Macker on the way through every now and then. And he kept telling me about this new series that he was involved with. And he said, um, it's going to be great. You've got to watch this space, watch this space. And, uh, I, and, and I still hadn't kind of seen a car or touched a car or knew what it was about. And then about um, two and a half years ago, I guess it was now, he said, look, we're looking for someone to uh, help uh, get the series up and running. We've sold sort of 12 to 14 cars. Uh, are you interested? And I said, look, Macro, I don't know anything about them. And he said, look, come and have a look at a round. So I went down to Winton two years ago to see the first round. And the first time I saw the cars, I, I figured, mate, if there was ever a replacement for the V8 Ute series, this is it. This is raw power, big 15-inch NASCAR type wheels, cars that move around, no aero, lots of horsepower, sound great, and their current bodied Mustangs, Camaros, and Dodgers. They look good, they sound great, and people want to race them. And that was really the catalyst that got me in. So uh, we did a deal, and a couple of years later, we're, we're still there, having sold some 50 cars now. Yeah, those particular types of cars have become so popular that there's actually a couple of separate series for them. There's the TA2 series, which runs as part of the AMRS, and there's also the Australian Transav series, which is running as part of the, the ARG conglomerate of categories um obviously there was a bit of politics early this year but do you see those two series being able to sustainably coexist alongside one another well as alan grice once said to me and he was a state politician in queensland he said there's uh, there's far more politics in motor racing than what there ever was in state parliament and he's pretty much he's pretty right but i think i guess i look at it from a holistically point of view in that Prior to COVID-19, we, uh, you know, we had sold um, 50 cars and we were restricted in some, some areas for 28 cars on the grid. So we were going to run into a problem at some stage in, in coping with grid density. And it was always our plan, probably for 2021, to actually split the series into a, a pro series and an amateur series. So the pro series would run on higher profile events and, and probably feed the George Medikis, the Aaron Seatons and the, the Nathan Hearns of the world uh, quite well and give them a higher platform to race on. And whereas the, and I won't call them gentlemen drivers, but those drivers that are more mature in their years that just want to have fun, that have been there and done that with, um, with big events, but just want to have plenty of track time, not at a great deal of expense. Um, we thought there's definitely a series for that as well. So the plan was to split. There were some politics uh, with, uh, you know, initially, I suppose, through CAMS and an association with, uh, with Tony Hunter, who was the owner at that stage of TCM, who claimed to have the rights for Trans Am in Australia. And uh, our, I guess our question on that was, well, you can't have the rights to our cars because they're specifically built for this country and for Peter Robinson. Uh, you can't race these cars in any Trans Am competition in the world because they're not eligible. So how can, you know, you claim to have the rights for these? Anyway, look, that argument went on for 12 months and it wasn't really going anywhere. Tony sold out to ARG. ARG uh, got what they call the Trans Am rights from Tony as part of that deal. And um, when it was quite clear, we had initial discussions about the possibility of running together. I think, uh, I think there were some, some differences that we, uh, we figured we probably couldn't overcome. So to run two series is probably the better option. And we're currently in the situation where uh, the preferred option from both parties is to make sure those series have the same spec car supplied by TA2 muscle cars or PBR and, uh, and run the same componentry. So competitors can pick and choose where they want to race, whether they want to race at the more professional level or whether they want to race at more of a master's level, but they can all come together and race at the Bathurst 100 at Mount Panorama in November, or they can all come together and run at certain events. And I think that is probably the best outcome that we could achieve. And I think both series, certainly prior to COVID-19, both series certainly would have survived this year. And uh, I think once things settle down, I'm sure that, uh, that next year will, will look a lot more positive. But our plan is to continue to run the two series this year and come together at Bathurst for the Bathurst 100. So looking a bit longer term then, Craig, with those TA2 cars and specifically with the series that you're involved in managing, where do you see it heading longer term? Strategically, where would you like the series to get to over the next three and five years? The TA2 series is actually in a number of different countries now and it's just going into New Zealand. So one of the things that we want to 
ensure we can facilitate is a number of trans-Tasman challenge events. So New Zealand competitors coming to race here at Mount Panorama or the like, and a number of the Australian competitors, again, going over to race similar specification machinery at Hampton Downs or, or anywhere in New Zealand. And, and trans-Tasman competition is, is a major part of our agenda. I think for, for, for the series to be able to race regularly at Mount Panorama, I mean, a, a field of 40 to 50 TA2 cars around Mount Panorama, Mount Panorama will be a fantastic experience, a great spectacle. And uh, those kind of events are very, very important. And I think the series uh, will evolve. The biggest challenge, like it is with, with every series, when you become successful, you've got to make sure that uh, the people that are running it are driving it for the right reasons and containing the cost. And cost containment is what's made this series uh, as successful as it is. Low cost racing in a big bang for buck car that doesn't cost you 15 grand a race meeting to run. You can do it for less than five, including your accommodation, and your repair costs are very, very cheap as well. So, so long as the cost control as part of the expansion of the series is kept controlled, then I think the series, both series, have a great future. In light of the comments that you've just made, particularly about the low maintenance costs of the cars, are there things that other Australian motorsport categories can learn from TA2? Uh, look, yeah, we could go on for hours on this one, but let me tell you my thoughts on the current status, I guess, of motor racing in Australia. I think the day that Tony Cochran left supercars, the paradigm shifted from what was an entertainment-based series to a series controlled by the teams. You lost the ringmaster, the guy that drove the entertainment value of the act, and I don't think they've recovered to that point, and that's why I think they've got some major issues because of that. The entertainment value for the fan has dropped away. The cost to compete has gone through the roof. So there's a major, major, and it's the same in Formula One. They're going through exactly the same argument, and it's got too technical and too expensive. At the end of the day, the race fan just wants to see great racing, great panel-robbing racing. And, um, and I think, you know, supercars particularly could look at not just the TA2 model, but the Trans Am model in America. And uh, they've got to get their car cost control from a sustainability point of view back from something like $600,000 a car, what it is now, to I think around 250 grand has to be because I can't see how teams uh, and, and grid numbers can survive unless they get to that point. Now, that's a dramatic and a radical shift from where they are now and they have to do it very, very quickly. But the blueprint is there, it can be done, and the fan is the winner. The racing will be better, the noise will be better, the spectacle will be better, and I think the, the, the commercial support for the category, you will not require the multi, multi-million dollar budgets that they currently need to survive to fund at that level. So everybody wins, no one loses, but they don't have a lot of time to get that, uh, that act in order. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that, Craig. And uh, there we go. That's Craig Denyer's thoughts on the top level of motorsport in Australia. But when we look at the Australian motorsport landscape as a whole, it has become quite convoluted, hasn't it? Because you've got lots of different categories competing to try and attract a limited number of competitors and a limited amount of commercial support. And there's lots of people who feel that there are too many categories and actually, we'd be better off to have a smaller number of stronger categories rather than all of these classes that are competing for only a limited pool of competitors, especially in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you see that there's going to be a decline in the number of categories that we have here in Australia? And if there is, which ones are going to survive and which ones are going to die? A hard answer uh, to this question because I don't think we all know and I don't think any of us really understand what is the true financial washout that COVID-19 is going to cause when that is actually going to start to wash through the economy and for how long. And that's, that's, a, that's an unknown question. I agree there are, I think, far too many categories uh, in Australian motorsport. And I think CAMs have to, um, you know, take it on the chin that they've made some pretty disastrous decisions in, in, first of all, super utes being a diesel category, which we told them wouldn't survive, and the same with Formula 4. Now, the investment in those two categories has been significant and both have failed. And they, they failed because the people administrating them haven't understood the competitor base. 
you clearly have to understand what the competitor base wants, what they can afford and at what level they can afford to compete. Now, COVID-19 is going to change the landscape, but again, to what degree we don't particularly know. In terms of TA2, uh, I think our competitor base is still going to be fairly healthy. There's been two or three vehicle sales but uh, uh, of competitors that have got out, but there's also two or three vehicle sales of new competitors coming in. So, um, so on, you know, I, I still think the jury's out on what the long-term effects of this is going to have and how deep it's going to be. But I, I do agree with you. There are far too many, many categories, and I think it's, it's, it's not great for the sport, the fans, to see four, five, six, seven and eight car fields. I mean, what we should be seeing is 15, 16, 17, 20, 24, 22, 32 car fields because that's what generates basically the power of the entertainment value of the sport and the sustainability of the sport. Whichever way you look at it and whichever spreadsheet you do, and I've done spreadsheets for every category I've been involved with at every level of competition, whether it be V8 supercars, pro car, AMRS or club meets. The bottom line, if you don't have 20 to 24 cars on the grid, the act is not sustainable long term. During the time that you and Bill West spent running Spherix, you were managing not just the V8 Utes, but some other categories as well. You were involved in managing the Australian GT Championship, uh, the Mini Challenge. I know that you were involved in that for a little while as well. You assisted with um, running the, the Bathurst 12 hour in the early days of it being a production car race. So you've had a lot of experience at, at managing categories very successfully. So Category management, when you think about it and when you break it down, it contains quite a few elements, all of which have to be right. So you've got the media and the PR and broadcasting. You've got the commercial and the sponsorship side of things, getting the technical regulations for the cars right, getting the sporting regulations right, um, the administration side of things, so communicating with competitors and, and documentation. And then, you know, things like putting together um, series calendars, working out what the championship point system is going to be, working out what sort of race format you're going to use. When you take all of that and consider each one of those different aspects, what's the formula for managing a category successfully? Clearly understanding who the customer is and at what level that customer can afford to compete at. And again, it comes back to the basic understanding of, okay, where does the, where does the category fit in the niche of, of motorsport overall? Is there a market for it in terms of competitors first? Do you have 20, 22, 24 that ultimately can help sustain that category? Uh, and then basically, is it, is it a marketable category, not just to the race fan itself, but is it marketable to a potential commercial naming rights partner, sponsors, and so on? And is it marketable enough the teams can get their own individual team sponsors as well to help sustain the category. So I think it comes down to understanding clearly what the market um, uh, currently offers and what you can actually then bring to the market to offer something different that will create its own niche and be successful. The other thing that I'm interested to get your thoughts on as well is <laughs> looking at the, the media side of things, and we touched on this a bit earlier when we were talking about the radio landscape, but when you look at the facts that you've got traditional free-to-air and subscription TV models being challenged by on-demand streaming platforms, where do you see motorsport broadcasting heading in terms of television rights for motorsport categories? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, you've got some good ones today, Lockie, and I can't answer them all. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could look into a crystal ball. I think whatever whatever deal you do, it has to be today on a handheld device, you know, a device. You've got to be able to access it on your tablet or your mobile phone or whatever you're taking with you. I mean, that's, that's where sport is. And uh, whatever deal you do to get onto that platform, whether it's through free-to-air, Fox Sports, KO, whether it's ultimately through Boost Mobile, whether it's through Telstra or whatever, but I think you've got to end up with that as part of your platform. Uh, so that's very, very important. I think the, the answer to the question will largely be, I think, what's going to drive the V8 supercar rights deal for the next six years, bearing in mind their current deal ends at the end of this year, and where they end up with a free-to-air Fox Sports uh, internet platform mix, because they'll be going through those heavy debating discussions now with those stakeholders. And, uh, and I think whatever they end up with, you know, and they're probably negotiating in the worst possible time, given the COVID-19 experience, 
But I think, you know, that'll determine a pattern for where the future is. But I think whatever deal you have to have, you have to be able to pick it up on your hands-free device. One of the things about broadcasting racing events is that compared to other sports, it's quite a costly exercise because of the number of cameras that are required and the amount of manpower that you need to produce, particularly if it's a live broadcast. For categories below supercars, how can broadcasting for motorsport events remain commercially viable? That comes again back to competitor numbers, getting the competitors' numbers up to share the costs. So you don't have eight or nine in a category, but you do have 22, 23, 32 cars in a category. So their entry cost is all contributing to funding that cost and decent commercial partners, sponsors. They're the only two revenue sources of, um, of income that can help you offset that. And I know the AMRS this year started out with a deal um, with... Um, SBS and Speedway through Greg Cedar's production company, AVE, and live streaming. The first round at Witten was fantastic. You could pick it up and watch it uh, on your handheld device. We could stream that to our commercial partners' uh, Facebook page in America, Promax, which was fantastic for them. Uh, you could then watch it uh, free-to-air on television two weeks later on SBS Speed Week, and it was also replayed on Fox Sports and KO. So it was a, it was a great mix. Expensive, yeah, but nowhere near as expensive of, of, of you know what a supercar telecast is likely to be in terms of live uh, Fox Sports or, or ten broadcasts. So again, it all comes back to making those numbers work, and it comes back to competitor numbers being enough to help make the whole event wash its face, and uh, and then having the marketing bang for buck in terms of television exposure, eyes content, whatever you want to call it. Uh, being able to come in and su- supplement that with with them um, with supplementary sponsorship. It's a bit of a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because if you can generate the exposure, then your category is going to be more attractive to competitors. It's going to be easier for them to find sponsors, which means that you will have more cars on the grid, which in turn means that you've got more money to then invest in your broadcast package. Absolutely, you're right, and 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 one feeds the other, and uh, and you need all elements, you know, to come together to make it work properly. But it has been done; it can be done. And uh, as a, and I use again the example of the AMRS used at Winton this year, which which was well funded by the categories that supported it. The, the outcome was good. The cost effectiveness of the product was such that it was professional, but it wasn't over the top and was then affordable. And anybody anywhere in the world can pick it up and watch it on their own. Um, personal device. So it ticked all those boxes. Um, COVID-19, I'm I'm quite sure no one knows what the real competitor numbers out there at the moment that are likely to compete for the rest of the season and what impact that will have on those kind of deals. But the deals, if if they're struck right and sensibly and at the right level, they can be done. But it comes back to, again, having enough of those competitors in any one category to share the cost. And that's where it gets back to your argument, are there too many categories in Australia? We've seen that you've had an amazing career in everything that you've done in the the media and the motorsport landscape. You are currently enjoying managing the TA2 series. Uh, What's next for Craig Denyer? (laughs) I wouldn't say that I'm at the top of my game. I'd I'd say I've had a long climb from the bottom to the middle, Lockie. (laughs) But um, look, I don't know. know, I'm I'm probably uh, getting to the point where Another couple of years. I'd like to do it for another couple of years. But, uh, I mean, Jeff Matler's still going strong at the Clipsal 500, and he shows no signs of uh, retiring. But um, but I think, you know, I, I'm enjoying it at the moment. And I suppose if the enjoyment stops for whatever reason, then I probably will as well. But uh, I, uh, I was glad to take a break after uh, the V8 Ute Series. I was glad to have a, a couple of years on the tractor at the farm or, or home. And, uh, and not really engaging too much with motorsport other than what Grant did at the time. But I've enjoyed being back. I've particularly enjoyed the lower key race meetings, the AMRS uh, muscle car master style of race meeting because they, they tend to, uh, to be easier to, um, to run at, administer than, than major race meetings like supercars where everything is so time critical and you can so easily lose so much track time. So, and I think that's where a lot of the competitors enjoy it now too. I mean, a lot of them have been down that road. They've done the big events, you know, they've spent the money. They haven't had the track time that they want. They're happy to come back and do, be guaranteed a four or five races of a weekend and, uh, and know what the plan is and know they're going to get those four or five races in. So <clears throat> that's an enjoyable part of motorsport at the moment. And uh, I guess whatever I continue to enjoy it, whatever Grant continues to be involved in it, 
in some form, then I guess I'll be, um, be you know, bludging a free ticket off someone to hang around the paddock. In Australia, I mean, we clearly do need people with your sorts of skills and expertise in managing motorsport categories and understanding how to make the best strategic decisions to allow them to grow and to prosper. So, um, you know, could you envisage maybe mentoring some younger people who've shown interest to, or, you know, enthusiasm in being involved in category management? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and, and it's not rocket science. I mean, it's nothing that, uh, that nobody can, uh, as long as they understand what the product is, what their market is, it's, 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 it's certainly not rocket science and anybody could do it. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll always be involved in the sport in some form, I think, because um, I'm probably almost old enough now to be a historic commentator. So maybe I'll turn up at a historic race meeting or something and, uh, and, and continue to do some commentary work. But, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll always have, have, have the sport and, and, and I guess the passion for the sport in my heart and want to see the sport continue to grow, uh, evolve and survive. So uh, <coughs> it takes new blood to bring in new ideas and to cope with the new technology of the world and anything we can do to help foster that, happy to do so. All right, Craig. Well, we're just about done here on the podcast, but here on Checkered Flag Chat, we always finish up with a segment called Checkered Flag Choices. And it's... <laughs> basically speed dating by another name so the way it works is that i ask you five questions and you answer them it's it's fairly easy and uh, i'm sure you'll have some fun with it so question number one what is your favorite holiday destination my favorite holiday destination probably would be italy i I, I love italy Uh, i've always loved italy i've been there probably two or three times but uh, not during the COVID period. I wouldn't like to go there, but that would be my favourite holiday destination. Who are three people that you would invite to dinner? Uh, Dolly Parton. Yes. <laughs> would be one. Probably Tom Hanks would be two. And uh, let me think about motor racing. Sir Jackie Stewart. Mm, he'd be a good one for sure. What is your dream car? I'd have to say it was a Ferrari. I always always love Ferraris, and having owned one for a short period of time, they've kind of dropped off my, my favourite list these days. So, uh, um, as you have some bad experiences with the Ferrari <laughs> that you own. Anybody anybody that owns a mid seventies Ferrari's had a bad experience. Let me tell you. Um, I'd say an Aston Martin. Yeah, V twelve Aston Martin. That'd be my favourite car. What's the best advice you've been given about motorsport? Probably by Dick Johnson. And uh, I think he, he was quoted many times as saying, uh, don't think you can't ever be made redundant because uh, if you put your hand in a bucket of water and you take your hand out of the bucket of water, see how long it takes to water, the water to fill the spot. That is pretty right. No one's indispensable. And final question, who is the racing driver that you respect the most? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one. Um, I, I was lucky enough... In the first two years of the Gold Coast Indy event, they ran a Pro-Am celebrity race in Ford Lasers. And uh, the very, very first, and there was, uh, there was some class talent in it. There was uh, the Gagan brothers, Pete and Leo, Bob Jane, uh, John Leffler, Sir Jack Brabham, Alan Jones, Parnelli Jones from America. They had some really, really hot names in there. And, uh, and the only 15 minutes of fame that I've had in my entire motorsport career on track was for two consecutive years, I started from pole position. I was faster than everybody. First year, I got to drive with Pete Gagan. And Pete uh, was probably one of the greatest natural talents that I think uh, Australia has actually seen. And uh, we didn't actually win. We started from pole. But when we got to the belt change, the pit stop change in the middle, Pete was considerably bigger than I was. And it took an extra two minutes to get the belts around him. And Alan Jones went on to win and we finished third. Uh, and the next year, I, I raced with Bill Brown, who was another underrated driver. Bill was famous for that massive crash at Mount Panorama, where he rolled along the fence in, uh, in 1971, I think it was, in a GDHO Phase 3 Falcon, and uh, got to drive with Bill. So they were great. Um, they were both great drivers. I respected Gricey because I know him, and I know how hard he grafted and he worked to achieve uh, what he achieved. I think if I if I was to pick a favourite, I'd close relationship with Dick Johnson, as I mentioned before, as well, Kevin Bartlett. Um, but I'd have to say the guy that impressed me the most, and because it was the catalyst for me getting into the sport, was Norm Beachy. Because Norm Beachy basically was the first 
big name motor racing driver I ever saw race, fully sideways in the wet at Hume Weir with his hand out the window waving to the crowd, blew me away. And then he went on to win the 1970 Australian Touring Car Championship in the famous Shell Monaro and uh, Holden Monaro. So I'd have to say that the Beachy is right up there, but there's so many others that are very, very close behind. It's close behind. It's probably unfair to name one. But, um, you know, Moffat, Brock. I mean, I was the first journalist to interview Peter Brock when he won Bathurst in 1972. You know, that's a standout memory for me. And uh, there's, there's so many over the years. And it's look, it is a great sport. You're in it, Lockie, because you're passionate about it. You love the sport as much as I do. We do it for nothing. You know, we don't. You don't get into motorsport unless you're Bernie Eccleston. Um, to make a lot of money out of it, you get there because of the passion for the sport and you, you graft, you do what you can to survive and, uh, and it is a disease. It gets into your blood, and, uh, but it's, it's a good disease and um, I've been very lucky. I've ne- not had the success on track that my son has had uh, and he's been very lucky to achieve that. He's had the raw talent to do it, but he's also been supported by good people along the way that have helped him do it too. And uh, I guess, you know, it's... Uh, what else would you do with your life? You know, would you would you, would you go golfing? No, no, I'm not a golfer. Uh, I'm too small for football. Uh, I can't heavyweight prize fight. So uh, I guess motor racing's the safest option for me. <laughs> well, there we go. Some amazing memories and some amazing insights as well into the state of play in the Australian motorsport landscape, past and present. Craig Denyer, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Lockie. It's been a pleasure, mate. Looking forward to catching up with you at a couple of the AMRS rounds later in the year. A big thank you to Craig Denyer for giving us his time to appear on the podcast, and I'm sure you'll all agree that he gave us some fantastic perspectives on the motorsport landscape. With the industry going through a turbulent period, the various categories and governing bodies could certainly do a lot worse than to call upon people with Craig's knowledge and experience to ensure there's a sustainable future for the sport we all love. I'm Lockie Madsall. Thanks for listening.